Hey everyone, Brandon here. I wanted to take a moment before we start this episode to address uh, some serious topics. Normally we like to have fun on this show, but there are a few things we cannot be silent about. As you may or may not know, this podcast is recorded in the state of Arkansas. Earlier this year, the Arkansas State Legislature passed a series of laws specifically targeting transgender citizens. They include a ban on trans students participating in school athletics, as well as a ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth. Now, the governor did veto a couple of these bills, but the legislature overrode the veto promptly. It is worth noting that the veto was overridden after on-the-record Senate testimony from an Arkansas pediatrician describing an increase in child suicide attempts due to this type of legislation. It's pretty clear where Republican morals lie. This legislation was lobbied for by the Heritage Foundation, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group, and the Eagle Forum, which was founded by the late anti-gay activist Phyllis Schlafly. You'll notice no sponsor on behalf of the trans community. To be frank, these laws are disgusting, immoral, and a complete overreach of government. We, at Eerie Earfuls vehemently oppose all anti-trans legislation, especially these bills. Unfortunately, Arkansas is not the only state introducing anti-trans legislation. Our trans siblings are under attack all over the country, and we have to use all the tools we have to protect them. We will be providing a link to the Arkansas-based organization Intransitive. They were founded by two trans Arkansans, and they provide educational workshops in Arkansas, Texas, Colorado, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Puerto Rico to service providers, nonprofits, businesses, and community organizers. They also have a ton of free resources on their website. Go visit them and feel free to contact them to schedule a workshop or training or donate. If you want to help out further, let your voice be heard. Contact your state representatives, your federal representatives, your city council, your school board, and anyone else that will listen to you. Let them know how you feel about these current issues and how you intend to vote in the next election. Then, if they don't listen, organize against them. Inform everyone you know of the issues and encourage them to engage. Write letters, make phone calls, donate, canvas, volunteer, take your friends with you when you go to vote. Make as much good trouble as possible. One final note, it's been over a year since George Floyd's death at the hands of Derek Chauvin. And while we are glad that George Floyd's murderer has been convicted on all three counts, it's not lost on us that the same day the verdict was announced, six more African-Americans were killed by police. We've said it once, and we'll continue to say it. Black Lives Matter. Trans rights are human rights. We will continue to use our platform to speak up and speak out. And if that's not your thing, well, this might not be the show for you. All right, now on to the episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls, cursed for delving into the mysteries of life. Each episode we choose a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Fair warning, there will be spoilers. I'm Justin. And I'm Brandon. Okay, let's get to today's double feature. The person picking the double feature rotates from episode to episode. This week was my pick and I chose In the Mouth of Madness and Ghost Stories. Let's pop in the synopsis tape. In the Mouth of Madness is a 1994 American horror film directed and scored by John Carpenter and written by Michael DeLuca. In the midst of an unspecified disaster, Dr. Wren visits John Trent, a patient in a psychiatric hospital. Trent explains that he was an insurance investigator hired by massive New York-based company Arcane Publishing to investigate the supposed disappearance of horror author Sutter Kane. While having lunch with a colleague, Trent is attacked by a man wielding an axe who asks him if he reads Sutter Kane before being shot to death by a cop. Trent learns the man was Kane's agent, who supposedly went insane and killed his entire 
entire family after finishing Kane's latest work. Trin suspects that Kane's disappearance is a publicity stunt to fuel the rumors of Kane's work causing disorientation, memory loss, and paranoia. While reading Kane's work and suffering from bizarre nightmares, he realizes the red lines in all of Kane's book covers creates a map of New Hampshire and marks the location of Hobbs Inn, the fictional town in which most of Kane's works are set. Linda Stiles, Kane's editor, accompanies Trent on a trip to find this town, locate the missing author, and retrieve the overdue manuscript. To their surprise, they arrive at Hobbs End, and Trent and Linda begin searching the town, encountering people and landmarks from Kane's novels. Linda confirms it all started as a publicity stunt, but the town shouldn't exist. She goes to confront Kane directly in the nightmarish church at the edge of town, but he exposes her to his new novel titled In the Mouth of Madness. When she returns, she's been changed and corrupted like the rest of the town. Trent tries to flee, but each attempt finds him driving back into the center of town until he eventually crashes his car. Trent awakens in the church, where Kane explains Trent as a character in his latest novel, which once published will summon eldritch nightmares from another realm and end humanity. Kane gives Trent the manuscript, telling him to return it to New York. Linda stays behind, because she's already read to the end, and Trent suddenly finds himself transported, seemingly, back to the real world. He tries several times to destroy the manuscript, only for it to be returned to him unharmed. When he arrives in New York, he tries to explain what he saw to Kane's publisher, only to be told that there was no Linda at their company, and Trent delivered the manuscript months ago. The book has been out for weeks, and the movie adaptation was releasing soon. Trent eventually begins wandering the streets, finding readers of Kane's books and killing them, which is how he ends up arrested and admitted to the asylum. Dr. Wren brushes the story off as paranoid delusions as he leaves, but that night, monstrous creatures rampage through the asylum. When Trent awakens, everyone in the asylum is dead, and he's free to leave. He wanders to a movie theater where he sees the film, and the Mouth of Madness is playing, starring himself. He goes inside and watches as the previous events of the film play out on the screen. The film ends with Trent's hysterical laughter breaking into hopeless sobs as the version of him on screen screams at the horrors he's witnessed. Ghost Stories is a 2017 British horror film written and directed by Jeremy Dyson and Andy Nyman, based on their 2010 stage play of the same name. The movie begins with a shot of a mirror reflecting a window. As the sound of wings fluttering begins, we're introduced to Philip Goodman, a well-known professor and television host of the show Psychic Cheats, dedicated to debunking fraudulent psychics. Philip was raised Jewish, but is now an atheist dedicated to saving families from having their lives ruined by superstition, the way he felt his family's lives had been. One day, Philip is contacted by Charles Cameron, a paranormal investigator from the 1970s whom Philip idolized growing up that went missing decades ago. The now elderly and sickly Cameron summons Philip to the trailer park where he's been residing and asks him to help investigate three supernatural incidents which Cameron couldn't debunk and has caused him to doubt his entire life's work. The first case is a night watchman, Tony Matthews, who no longer visits his daughter in the hospital because she has locked-in syndrome. While holding watch in an abandoned asylum, he's tormented by the spirit of a little girl with pigtails and a yellow dress. After hearing this story, Philip goes to Tony's priest and learns Tony began visiting his daughter again after this encounter. The priest admonishes Philip for his lack of faith. The second case is a teenage boy named Simon Rifkind, who encountered a demonic creature in the woods on the way back from a party. When his car breaks down, a goat-like humanoid creature chases Simon into the woods before he's grabbed by a massive tree-like being. While investigating the site, Philip doesn't find any evidence of this story, but is startled by his own ghostly image staring back at him from his car window. The third case is a wealthy financier named Mike Priddle, whose home was haunted by a poltergeist while his wife was in the hospital giving birth. Due to being in their 40s, Mike and his wife resorted to in vitro fertilization, and when Mike investigates noises upstairs, he is attacked by a red-eyed vision of his wife. He tells Philip that after he escaped, he received a call from the hospital that his wife had died giving birth to Barty and implies the baby isn't human. He then shoots himself in the head with a shotgun in front of Philip. Philip returns to Cameron's trailer to confront him, but Cameron tears off a latex mask, revealing himself to be Mike Priddle, or rather, something that looks like Mike Priddle. Philip relives a childhood memory of when a disabled boy was tricked into crawling into a narrow tunnel by two bullies and left to die when he got stuck. Then, the corpse of the boy attacks Philip, dragging him down a hallway to a hospital bed where it's revealed Philip attempted to kill himself and has been in a hospital all along suffering from locked-in syndrome. All of the previous events were just Philip's dreams produced by details from his real-world surroundings. The film ends with Goodman staring at a mirror over his bed that reflects a window as a bird crashes into the glass. So the reason that I picked these two movies was because both of them focus on like main characters that do investigative work they both deal with like the manipulation of reality and like what is what is considered reality from the character's perspective and both of them are like tribute films 
tributes to different subject matters and, and such. And so, yeah, the reason that I discovered Ghost Stories was actually last year when we first went into lockdown and I got a region free Blu-ray player and I was Googling like the best region B horror films and Ghost Stories came up. And so I was like, oh, it's perfect. I'll buy it and then I'll watch it. And, you know, I watched it and immediately was like, oh, this is so much like in the mouth of madness. It's perfect. It'll go perfectly together. And I have been waiting for this episode ever since. Also did not realize that you could buy it as region a because Lionsgate also distributes in the US. Imagine yep. that. <laughs> so yeah. But I got the Region B movie. Yeah. You got the works. proper British one. Yeah. It's fancy. It came with like a little booklet, like interviews with the cast and all kinds of stuff. So you were saying that the films are sort of tribute films, and that's a connection I didn't entirely connect. No, that's a connection that I didn't entirely connect because I know how to use the English language correctly. That's right. Um, but that's totally spot on because I, In the Mouth of Madness is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It used to be my favorite, but it's kind of been supplanted by The Babadook because I fucking love The Babadook. But it's been one of my favorite movies since I watched it when I was a kid because I loved Stephen King growing up. And it was so obviously yeah. like a, a, a pastiche of Stephen King that I was like, give me more. I need Sam Neill reading Stephen King and going crazy. I thought of it when I first read the booklet that came with the Ghost Stories Blu-ray that I bought. Um, <laughs> they talked about when they were making the play and the film, how they were wanting to do kind of like a, you know, warm tribute to British horror and it was it was interesting the way it played out because when the show the play ghost stories was originally conceived it was in i believe it was liverpool and it was because the theater that hosted that play had previously hosted the play version of the woman in black and the guy that wrote uh, ghost stories had seen that play and was like oh that i loved that you know like horror plays people don't do those very often and that was the last show that was in that theater and it had been empty since then so he was like i'm gonna write a horror show and i'm gonna stick it in that theater and so that was that was the idea behind it so when he was approached to make a film adaptation of it there's like another layer of tribute added to it because when it's converted into film he is really tapping into this style that is uh i don't think we've talked about a lot on this show is the amicus portmanteau horror film which is uh basically the rival studio to hammer horror in the uk so hammer horror did a lot of like dracula and frankenstein but a lot of their stuff was period pieces and amicus portmanteau was the same horror but usually modern settings it even had like a lot of the same people like peter cushing and christopher lee so sometimes people would literally get the studios confused because they were you know fairly interchangeable but anyway so the film uh, and usually these amicus portmanteau horror films a lot of them a lot of the famous ones had this kind of i guess kind of like an, uh, an epistolary style where somebody's telling a story or there's like <laughs> little vignettes and the little vignettes have like you know they're like a little self-contained thing you can see that in the movie and yeah in the mouth of madness is a tribute to hp lovecraft specifically there's a lot of references to his stories uh, specifically I think the one that's, you know, mentioned in the title is the Lovecraft novella at the Mountains of Madness. The film uses a lot of flashbacks, which is common, you know, Lovecraft trope. Oh, yeah. There's lots of themes of insanity, which is common in Lovecraft. There's cosmic monsters. It's also a tribute to Stephen King because people have, you know, called Stephen King the modern Lovecraft because he's, you know, kind of in that same cosmic horror vein without the anti-Semitism and, uh, and the racism just in general. Yeah. Uh, he still does well, the magical racism. black person yeah. a lot. Uh, but. Yeah, I, I retract that. Some racism, yeah. but not not the. Uh, it's more of like a. It's more yeah. of a benevolent, yeah. dumb white guy racism usually versus the just yeah the malicious mm. hate that H.P. Lovecraft had. One of the cool things about it, In the Mouth of Madness is that, kind of similar to Ghost Stories, it is told from Trent's perspective, recounting the events of the movie which is really common for a lot of Lovecraft stories 
there they were like epistolary literally like in journals and they would be sort of like writing out the events of things that have happened usually ending with some sort of like dark note where they're like mm-hmm. cuckoo for cocoa puffs that format fit perfectly in that uh, so that was I loved that. Yeah, the ending of In the Mouth of Madness, one of the things that was different between the two is that In the Mouth of Madness is more open. Uh, it gives you more of that. You remember that Twilight Zone episode where like the world ends and that guy can finally, you know, he's like the last yeah. man alive. He finally has all the time to read and then he time breaks his glasses. Yeah, it has that same vibe when he's sitting in the theater and he's laugh crying at his own story and he's like mm-hmm. the only. Uh, meanwhile, Ghost Stories kind of has like a more kind of sentimental warmth to it because you're seeing all these things and you're like, God, this is crazy. And then you realize that he is a victim of his own like self doubt. He's basically in his own hell, torturing himself every day because he's got this locked in syndrome and he's living through these scenarios where he's, you know, questioning his legacy and how he'll be remembered and all this stuff. So that actually relates to a couple of things that I was thinking about. So one of them is I would argue that they both are living in kind of a hell of their own oh, making yeah. uh, because Trent's Trent's is set up earlier in the movie when he's riding with Linda because when Styles at one point she's talking about if everybody else is crazy and you are the only sane one does that make you sane or does that make you the crazy one and by explicitly not reading the books and sort of not joining the crowd he becomes the only one left that mm-hmm. isn't sort of absorbed into this madness which you know is how it results in him being the last one alive but also the loneliest person because he yeah. is alone Philip kind of has that too because he he doesn't seem to have a good relationship with his sister besides the like flashback that we see at the very beginning of the movie she's like never brought up and he definitely doesn't have a good relationship with his father and he doesn't have a family of his own that he pursued so he is alone my point that I was getting at earlier was that there's a finality in ghost stories because at the end you realize that the reality is he has locked in syndrome and all of this has been basically him just torturing himself over his botched suicide and the fact that the reason he got to that point in the first place was he was constantly worried about his legacy. In the Mouth of Madness is similar because, you know, the main character is constantly worried about his legacy, but also, you know, continually going after the next chase, the next investigation, the next big thing. But it's much more kind of like nihilistic and open-ended at the end because there's no one left. And so you really don't know if it's like all in his head or if if everybody, if like this is reality or if he's really in like the cell still locked up just laughing and the rest of the world has gone on without him or if this really is reality and the world has ended and he's like the last person, they they kind of leave it open. They which do. I like. I, and I, yeah, I like that a lot. I, yeah. Especially, I love the way the movie that's on screen is like specifically fucking with him the way that like the clips that they keep playing from the previous like from the movie that we have just watched is the this is not reality not reality this (laughs) is reality and like (laughs) fuck you movie (laughs) exactly in the topic of their own personal hells something that i noticed is both of them have a sort of cyclical nature to them that's not necessarily super obvious because both of them sort of have a sort of ending to them but stuff in the movie implies that this repeats itself like um when philip is being dragged down the hallway by callahan was that his name yes callahan yeah when callahan's dragging philip down the hallway after he pulls off his sort of clothes and reveals the the hospital gown he says not again implying that this is something that he realizes constantly Mm -hmm. and is in fact has been sort of trying to intrude throughout the movie that's Mm -hmm. why tony imagines that little girl ghost putting her finger in his mouth and why callahan does the same thing right at the end because that's the breathing tube trent at the very beginning of the movie once he gets admitted says this is a rotten way to end it and then sutter kane says it's not the ending you haven't even read it yet (laughs) then he flashes back and so there's this implication that in a way everything is always cycling because he is a character in the novel and because it's a character in a novel you can reread it and rewatch it and therefore it never truly ends for him because he is fictional Mm. i was doing a little bit of sort of light research into that idea because it was super interesting to me and it's just I, i love it plays into this old old set of tropes 
because I was looking at Dante's Inferno because that was in what hell popped into my head was cyclical hell is usually associated with Dante's Inferno. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing that popped into my head was actually Storm of the Century. It's oh, when he's talking to it's when Andre Linoge is talking to one of the townspeople, older guy. He's actually that actor, I think, is in a lot of Stephen King stuff. He's talking to that guy and he says that the guy let his mother die in a nursing home and then he says she's a cannibal in hell now and when you go there she's going to spend the rest of eternity eating your face every day that's what hell is repetition and <laughs> as when i thought like that's the, the quote that came into my head and then i was like wait that happens a lot because like in dante's inferno everyone lives their like that their torture repeatedly forever in greek mythology a lot of the stories that that you read are sort of a cyclical set of torment. Like um, Prometheus gets tied to the rock after he brings the fire to um, humans, and he has eagles eat his liver every day for eternity. Another example is Sisyphus, who is punished by pushing boulders up, um, uh, pushing a boulder up a mountain, but he can never get it to the top. His punishment is it, every time he gets close to the top, it will always roll back down, and he has to start all over. So there's this concept of like repetition being hellish in itself like the the very act of repetition can itself be a punishment like when when people were in school growing up not not as much when we were kids although some uh, like writing lines was a thing where like you had to yeah. just write the same thing over and over again mm-hmm. oh it's so, even referenced in the opening of the simpsons oh is it yeah, that's what Bart is doing. He's writing lines on the chalkboard. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry, and, like the lines meant- are always different. Yeah, that's been a thing for like a long time. I thought you meant like the Simpsons were doomed to repeat that over and oh, over again. Kind of. I mean, because the they- opening is always the same or almost yeah. always the same. But yeah, I just thought that was interesting the way both of those movies have this sort of cyclical idea. It's interesting, uh, you know, that you talked about hell being repetition. Ghost Stories explains, I think, pretty well why this character's tortured. Like, he is tortured by his own past decisions. And, you know, he, he basically confronts what those decisions are in his own way. So my question is, what do you think... What do you think Trent is being punished for (laughs) i think that trent i think that they're sort of inverses of each other so i think that both of them are the same type of character and that they're both cynical and they're Mm -hmm. both their job is to sort of investigate like get to the bottom of the facts just the facts man because that's what philip's whole deal is like investigating fake psychics and exposing them as frauds and trent's whole thing is investigating insurance fraud and that's his whole like that's what he's doing is he's going to go find Sutter kane and prove that all this tomfoolery is not real it's interesting that both of their jobs are all about seeking the truth and figuring out what reality is like what Mm -hmm. is what is real like what's really going on so it's interesting that yeah both of these movies focus on people that's like their whole job is to get down to what's really going on and the the movies themselves fuck with that like what is really going on don't know Mm -hmm. what is reality (laughs) and it's trent isn't as well developed as philip and that we don't really get a sense of what trent's home life is like too much like there's there's little hints of some stuff but not not a whole bunch whereas we get like a really solid idea of both philip's home life and like what his life was like growing up and then you know his own past trauma of that a lot of us have dealt with you know like obviously we haven't killed poor children in tunnels But we have been in situations where we didn't act on something and we regretted it later because our inaction was taken as complacency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's pretty universal. So you get like, you know, all that, all that good nuance, you know, torture, guilt, all that good stuff you get with ghost stories with uh, Phillips, uh, Dr. Goodman's arc it does feel like he's a little bit more flat because they kind of convey him as like this cool good guy and he you know can see through the bs and Mm -hmm. you know he's like you know 
all about the facts. But then in that really, there's that, you know, really interesting scene, which I love. It's, I think it's my favorite scene of the entire movie where the publisher comes out of that thing and walks across the street. It's all in one shot, Mm -hmm. walks across the street from the background and like breaks through the window all while this conversation, an incredibly important conversation is being had. It's setting up the crux of the film, which is that Trent is going to go investigate and, you know, Sutter Kane to see if he's real and to see if he's faking his own death or whatever. Yeah. Um, but in that conversation, you kind of get to learn, you know, you get in Trent's head a little bit more because he's like, it is part of, you know, getting the facts, but it's also like kind of making a name for himself because he gets off or he is excited by this idea that he is like the ultimate truth seer fact finder kind of person and so when that guy is like i don't know you know i i don't think anybody else would be able to do it but you I feel like, you know, that's mm-hmm. part of Trent part of his ego being like, oh, yeah, yeah, I think I could do that. So I guess there's some I guess that's probably the motivation is there is some ego behind like wanting to be the best of anything. Oh, for and sure. Then, yeah. And then <laughs> falling so far. All that whole conversation. But I remember he was talking with Styles specifically about like groups like being part of the crowd. And he was very much an individualist. He didn't, he believed himself to be better than all that, all those people just mindlessly consuming Sutter Kane's dross. So there's only one scene I can think of where we really get a sense of what Trent is like outside of his sort of like larger than life persona and, or being like a rationalist. And that's uh, when he's driving and Styles is asleep and he like pulls out that bike horn and honks it while she's sleeping. And like, that is such a weird, I don't want to say out of place scene, but it's so light compared to the rest of the movie that it's like, it's just, it's almost kind of sweet where he's like, and he's like, oh, whoa, don't hit someone while they're driving. <laughs> uh, but what I was going to say is there's this interesting moment that parallels the two and actually ties back into my sort of hell is repetition thing. And it ties back into Dante's Inferno, which is there's this moment while Trent is reading one of Sutter Kane's books. And I don't know if this is meant to be a scene from the book or if this is like, well, no, it's supposed to be a real thing that happens, I guess. But he's he's walking down this street and he stops at an alleyway. He sees this cop beating up a kid and he sort of stops and like watches it for a second. And it looks like he kind of wants to do something, but he doesn't. And then the cop turns and looks at him and says, you want some too, buddy? And then he just yeah. kind of walks on. And Philip, you know, does that same thing with Callahan by like not telling anyone that Callahan crawled in there. He doesn't let anyone know that Callahan's hurt or possibly dead or in danger. He he just gets afraid and runs away. And in Dante's Inferno, one of the circles of hell is actually for people who don't believe in anything. They're like the agnostics of the people who don't sort of really align to any particular side. They didn't choose God or the devil. And that circle of hell is because choosing not to choose is a choice you are still making a choice that inaction is in itself a choice to take inaction and both trent and philip do that i was really interested in the way that both of these movies are about stories and they're about the way that we process stories because philip is being told stories and we're experiencing how he understands those stories and trent is telling someone a story but his story is also about people reading stories and like the infectious nature of those stories. So I was looking into belief specifically because both of them are sort of about belief at their core. Philip is an atheist and has sort of rejected his Jewish heritage and his Jewish faith. And he's even admonished by a Catholic priest, like, you know, like, Hey bro, you should believe in something turd. And Trent same thing like he he doesn't really believe in anything he's sort of a rationalist atheist and so i was looking into like some articles about belief and the way that your brain handles belief is fascinating on the one hand there's this idea that belief makes something real because that's kind of the way that that's kind of the way that in the mouth of madness plays with that idea. There's even a point where Sutter Kane says his books have been read more than the Bible. And he talks about himself being sort of like a new God. And it's the everyone's sort of investment and belief in these 
books that sort of gives him that power and allows the sort of eldritch beings to rise. Obviously, that doesn't happen, but like there is a a truth to that in that like everyone knows about the like the the placebo phenomenon but it's still an interesting thing where like they always have to test very thoroughly drugs to make sure that the drugs are actually effective because it's really common for people to be told this is medicine and for them to get better even if it's not medicine because they believe it's medicine and therefore their brain sort of corrects things sometimes that's temporary that's actually a a thing that's really common in like faith healers is that faith healers will get uh, everyone gets so hyped and it's such an emotionally charged situation that your brain is just pumping serotonin as hard as it can go and so people will have temporary moments of like improved health and that's that's how faith healers are able to sort of spin some of that is that like oh well you know i healed you with the lord but really what's happening is that like those people are just so high on their uh, literally their own body's chemistry that they're able to sort of in the same way that if you break an ankle eventually you can actually walk on it because your body will flood you with enough feel good chemicals that like you can until you get to a place where you can settle down and rest and then you come down off of that the placebo effect is so interesting and you kind of see that with how that sort of shapes your reality in a way and beliefs also the reason it's hard for people to change their mind with stuff is because from an evolutionary level our emotions and our beliefs are tied so people have a lot of strong beliefs about things like 9-11 and it's because those are super emotionally charged moments that wrote themselves into their brain and it's hard for someone to just bring facts and be like here are facts that disprove whatever thing you believe people will just reject and be like nah that's not true because that doesn't matter what matters is that that doesn't feel right and even though colbert made a joke about like truthiness how something feels true (laughs) there is there is a certain level of that that is that is true um right no you're right there's a term of like verisimilitude and you can even see that in like tabletop games i've been doing a lot of D stuff because it is honestly my only escape from some of the nightmares of the world <laughs> and there's this fascinating thing with like D is a sort of heightened representation of the world it's not realistic but there are things that if you don't abide by certain things or or have certain rules in place you don't accept it as real which none of it is real you're fighting fucking fairies and dragons but there has to be a certain level of logic or the verisimilitude breaks and then you can't you don't accept it anymore philip does that his brain is sort of set on like passive reception and so he just takes in random details around him and then his brain takes that and contextualizes it at best as best it can it seems to always end with him realizing, oh, right, I'm in the hospital. Fuck. But yeah. in the meantime, that's how you get all these weird details that bleed in, like the numbers that were important for Callahan that Callahan was looking for. They pop up constantly throughout the movie, uh-huh. like literally from the moment he receives the letter from Charles Cameron on, like when he goes to Charles Cameron's trailer park. There are storage buildings uh, right outside of the car where Philip parks his car, and they have those numbers scrawled on them. And Mm -hmm. the ones that, like, it doesn't show 79, but that's what Charles Cameron's trailer is, number 79. And then when he goes to the pub to talk to Tony, the name of the pub is the 10th number. (laughs) And the logo of the pub is a painting of the tunnel that Callahan goes into whenever he's with Mike Priddle and Mike Priddle opens the the cabinet to pull his gun out because they're going sort of like skeet shooting or hunting or whatever the pretense for that was supposed to be you can see all nine numbers written out like it's the combination to the lock that's why uh, after I watched it the first time I was like oh this is one of those movies that needs repeat viewings because you just learn so much more the more you watch it and you learn how everything's set up, you know, to point towards the ending. But the first time you watch it, you are following like the emotional journey with the character because you don't notice those things because you're not trained to notice those things, you know, like in real life. Uh, and then, you know, the more you watch it, the more you're like, oh, fuck, you know, this was it was like that. All the clues were there from the beginning and I just didn't notice it. Just like the main character. I loved it so much. Something that I I picked up on, at first I thought it was a reference to like Nightmare on Elm Street. So I noticed that there was super heavy red and green throughout the movie. So like when he first goes to meet Tony, the bar is lit with very subtly green lights and there's tons of red stuff 
everywhere. The benches are red. There's stained glass red windows. Lots of incidental things that are red, like red cups and little red like knickknacks and things throughout the set. So there's lots of red and green. And at first I thought it was just that, but it continues throughout the movie. There's only specific moments when it breaks with that pattern. You don't necessarily see it a ton, I don't think, in... Simon Rifkin's house, although maybe you do. Um, I'm trying to remember. Oh no, you do. As soon as he goes into the room, that room is lousy. The walls are green. They're mm-hmm. on like green furniture, but there's lots of red drawings from those, like those old school arcane, mm-hmm. the old demon drawings. Then they're all red. Mike Priddle's story starts breaking that. It's a very cold, chrome and white, brightly lit, like big windows. True, but it is out in the middle of the country, in the nice greenery of the country, and that's the first thing that you're exposed to when you are introduced to that character, because mm-hmm. they're out, you know, like, shooting pheasants in the green country, so more color. More than that. If, you're, if we're talking about specific, I was talking about, like, the actual story, but if you're talking about that, then yeah, Philip is also wearing red plaid, and, um, oh. which is, that is the same plaid that I think Callahan was wearing, in the actual, like when we get to see the actual memory, I think Callahan was wearing that red plaid shirt. Mike is wearing a green coat with like, I think a red shirt underneath. So there's lots of red and green constantly throughout the movie. In Mike Priddle's actual story, it starts very cold and brightly lit and it's like chrome and white and there's not a lot of color at all. But the night that he starts hearing noises upstairs when we get that scene with like the creepy baby thing in the crib and then his wife's ghost attacks him Mm -hmm. it's all lit red and green but with little accents it's all lit with green but there's little accents of red even his wife's eyes like she's lit with a green light but her eyes are bright red i noticed eventually that those are the colors of callahan and the bullies callahan is wearing a green sort of parka and one of the bullies is wearing a bright red jacket over his sort of school oh, yeah. uniform that sort of carries through even into reality where in his hospital room, everything is like the walls are painted green. There's this green light. And so I was, I was like, what's the deal with red and green besides maybe like being a reference to Nightmare on Elm Street? I was trying to figure out why is it that when things are lit green, they're eerie. So I was looking it up and the history of the color green, really weird, man. Uh, so the oh, reason that the reason that the color green is associated with like poison and danger is because Scheele green was created by Swedish scientist Carl Wilhelm Scheele. And it was back in the, in the 18th century during the industrial revolution, it became the color because it was like the first time they were able to color their clothing green It turns out uh, that it was partially made, I believe, of arsenic. Let me find really. Yeah, it was made of arsenic components. Eventually, people believed that it was the green dye that was killing them because it was made of arsenic. And that's possibly kind of true, but it's also kind of not true because it's not just that the clothes were so toxic it was killing them. Arsenic was used in like fucking everything. It was the clothes on top of already being exposed to a lot of arsenic that started to kill people. Like it's like Napoleon's death is blamed on this green dye supposedly poisoned him. I was going to say like, not only that, but people didn't wash their clothes very often and they didn't take a lot of baths. So Mm -hmm. yeah, if you're wearing the same stuff, sweating in it and yeah, it's It's going to leach into your skin constantly. Yeah. So that color green, not to mention, you know, like the, the green from like the 1800s radium. Good grief. (laughs) <laughs> no wonder it's so associated with sickness. <laughs> On top of that, in the 80s, I think it was the 70s or 80s, they were trying to come up with a new symbol for poison that wasn't so scary to kids that still conveyed that something was dangerous because they really had legitimately used the skull and crossbones for a long time. So they invented something called Mr. Yuck. And Mr. Yuck was a green face with like a curly, sad mouth with like a tongue sticking out. And that's still what they use, I think, although not as much, that they they used Mr. Yuck to convey, this is poisonous, don't get near it or consume it. And since it was also used to convey poison in its green. Green just continues to have this undertone of poison, not in everything, but like when you start to light things with a green filter, suddenly it feels sort of toxic and eerie. And like that was used to such great effect in ghost stories. 
every haunting scene had like this green malaise over it. It was fantastic. I think another interesting thing about ghost stories is the amount of faceless imagery that there is because, you know, in that first story, that little girl that like walks up to him and she doesn't have a face in, in Rifkin's story, you never see his parents faces. And also you never see the face of the demon either. And also in the third story, the little dolly that's in the crib for the kid also doesn't have a face throughout each of the stories there's this idea of like faceless hidden identity mm-hmm. also you know when when uh callahan is first introduced uh, i think the first time i remember seeing him that made me jump was when they're out doing the shooting thing they're fixing to go into the third story yep. and he sees that guy in the hoodie but is faceless can't see the face additionally the little doll that's in Mike Priddle's crib for his baby is both one, an actual doll that's in Philip's room whenever they cut to reality, but that's also what Tony's ghost looks like is a little girl in a yellow dress with pigtails. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So there's all these weird little like details and the fact that like birds, uh, Tony's startled by birds twice. There's that bird that whenever he first goes into the room, like a bird, and he's like, oh, God damn it. And then later there's that dead bird that like they specifically focus on. And then when he comes Mm -hmm. back through there later to replug in the generator again, it's gone. And the little girl has it uh, because we see at the very end of the movie. A bird crashes into the window. Yeah. Which, again, there's this constant weird repetition. Like, on the one hand, we experience all of this before it happens. And on the other hand, it's happening simultaneously. It's it's this... Mm-hmm. I, love, I love the weird time disconnect. Which is, I think, why Ghost Stories is... A better movie than In the Mouth of Madness. I'm sorry, In the Mouth of Madness. Please don't hate me. Because <laughs> In the Mouth of Madness is a little more sort of ham-fisted. Like, uh, like we said, it's a little more like spectacle. It's very much right. like, look at this creepy monster. Look at this yeah. kid. Like, but that's also yeah. Like we like we've already said. That's also very in in line with its subject material, which mm-hmm. is you know. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, similar to you know how how Ghost Stories is more intimate because of the the woman in black. I like them both for different reasons. It's mm-hmm. just because I feel more fulfilled after watching Ghost Stories because pretty much everything has an explanation, and and I love it when they do one of those haha all of these things that you thought were unimportant are actually referenced super important. Yeah, even if they're not just like things that you would immediately think were important are still brought in because that's the level of detail that they had when crafting this story versus, you know, in the Mouth of Madness, which has, you know, lots of nihilism and and stuff. But it's also that's that's their jam. That's John Carpenter's thing. That's that's Lovecraft's thing. It's more about Stephen King's thing, too, to a point. I mean, it's not the nihilism, but the sort of like it is the spectacle of horror. Basically, Ghost Stories is about the mundane horror that Mm -hmm. we bring on ourselves. And In the Mouth of Madness is definitely more about the spectacle of cosmic horror because Mm -hmm. it's it's inspired by Lovecraft. I think one of the most impactful moments for me as a kid was when they were first approaching Hobbs End and uh, they like they pass that kid and then they hit the old man and and the kid says, I can't get out. And I was just like, yeah. he won't let me leave. He says, I can't get out. He won't let me leave. And yeah, that was the part where I was like, oh my God, the kid is the old man. Mm-hmm. And also he has gotten to a point in such a short amount of time, you know, uh, in, in, as far as the movie is concerned, that he is willing to kill himself to get him out of this story. But like, yes, but like, I mean, it's a short amount of time for the movie. But when you think about the yeah. fact that he's been driving around exactly f- fucking decades trying to get it, out. And that in and of itself is a distortion of reality within, you know, the film, because mm-hmm. that character's reality is different from what the characters that are driving are going through. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I guess I should say it's different from Linda's reality of driving versus Trent's reality of sleeping, because that's what he did until they showed up at Hobbs End. And he was like, oh, you made it. You found it. Good for you. And I was like, you didn't do anything. I'm going to bring this up. And I'm going to give credit to Stephanie. I loved this observation. If you've never read Nosferatu, it's a book by Joe Hill, which is Stephen King's son. And it's about this woman who, as a girl, she learns that she can find things 
by driving across what she calls the shorter way, which is this bridge that should be uh, like rotted out. It's this old bridge near her house. But for whatever reason, whenever she's driving around mindlessly on her bike, thinking about things, the bridge presents itself to her and it's, it's, it's new. And when she drives across the bridge and gets to the other side, instead of coming just to the other side of where the bridge should empty, it drops her off wherever that thing that she's looking for is. The villain of that book is a guy named Charlie Manx, who is sort of like a vampire, kind of, but instead of preying on blood, he preys on, like, childhood innocence. And so his whole thing is that he captures kids and then takes them, similar to the way that the main character does, uh, he takes them through this sort of shorter way-esque passage to Christmas land. And by the time they get there, he has sort of sapped all of their innocence and child childlike wonder and stuff from them, and they've turned into feral monsters, which mimics Styles arrival to Hobbs End because she's driving around in the dark and there's lots of like random flashes and then suddenly she's driving on a bridge like a covered bridge and then when she gets to the other side ta-da she's in Hobbs End and there's like those kids that are sort of corrupted that are sort of running around and it bothers like it's it's a problem for the townspeople because they bring up the fact that like that's the first thing we see is them going to that church to confront Sutter Kane and saying like give us back our children because they're in the meantime running around in the background killing a dog (laughs) the next time we see them with the dog its back leg is missing because they've eaten it like (laughs) I wanted to credit Stephanie with that because as soon as she said I was like holy shit it is they're very similar in like with like those little details what I got was Sleepy Hollow vibes because in both the movie and in the legend, one of the ways that you can escape the Headless Horseman is as long as you make it across the bridge, you can escape the Headless Horseman, but you have to make it across. And Ichabod Crane, at least in the story, doesn't. Like, that's sort of the, the or at least it's, it's ambiguous whether he makes it across or not, because he's chased by the Headless Horseman across the bridge. And I kind of got that vibe from, from the way Hobbs End plays out, because she crosses that covered bridge seemingly out of nowhere and ta-da, she's in Hobbs End. And then mm-hmm. later when Trent is dropped back off in the real world, they're nowhere near any sort of covered bridge or anything like that. So it's just this neat little, lots of little references to like horror stories and stuff in, in, in the mouth of madness that are not quite as, uh, not quite as elegant as ghost stories, but they do have their own sort of delightful reference. Uh, I was trying to think of like if the people in the town were references to any ghost, sto- like any other horror stories. The front desk lady that had her husband like chained to her, you know, mm-hmm. gave me like misery vibes almost. Oh, I can uh, see that. Yeah, I should do more research into what what <laughs> specific Lovecraft stories were mentioned because they they mentioned you know in the mountains of madness specifically the the title sake and and you know insanity stuff but yeah I, I would be interested to know how not only they compare with actual hp lovecraft stories but also stephen king because you know the kids you know you could be like children of the corn but also i'm sure there's a lovecraft story there's probably one that goes with it same with the front desk lady there's some other ones too but i can't remember those were the two that that caught me off guard because that lady that they got to be the front desk lady is just a really good actress and she's in a ton of can, horror stuff too yeah and you can tell something's not right within the second shot that you see her because she already looks so much more worn, you know, and mm-hmm, tired. Disheveled. Yeah, than even the first time that you saw her. So I only have one more thing to talk about. It's the music. So it wasn't like a ton of stuff, but I do think it, it is interesting. I'm going to start, I guess, with Ghost Stories. Ghost Stories is scored by Frank... Ilfman. I haven't done a lot of research into him, but, you know, he's fairly famous, like, I guess, British composer. He does a really good job helping the film achieve its goal of trying to harken back to some of these Hammer horror films or these Amicus Portmanteau horror, mm-hmm. horror films in the way that in a lot of, like, the in the opening scene in some of these more melodic parts of the score, it sounds like something you might hear in, like, Theater of Blood or, like, uh, the horror of Dracula or something like that. The track that I specifically thought of was Goodman's Theme.
<laughs> it really is something. It, it reminded me a lot of the score to Theater of Blood for some reason. Uh, but it's also interesting that those references shift so quickly because it goes from like classic horror, you know, like more melodic sections. And then in the tense sections, specifically like the, the horror tales, it's sort of like something you would hear in Insidious. So it's it's a lot of, it's a heavy influence of Christoph Pendretsky who wrote pieces such as Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima and things like that. And it's a lot of like really high screechy violins Mm -hmm. using the bow to play on parts of the violin that you're not supposed to play on to create these weird otherworldly sounds. The soundtrack from Ghost Stories, the the particular clip that I thought of, was the cut labeled Dada. really good (laughs) oh yeah what i noticed i normally don't really have a lot of deep thoughts about the score but what i noticed i'm glad you uh, it's it's cool that you brought up the goodman's theme because i you you do i think you hear it in the beginning of the movie like during the sort of documentary yeah just a little bit but what i noticed is that each of those stories actually has at least it sounded to me like a um, maybe i'm misremembering but they had like distinct styles Tony's story has a more, like, more of like a, I don't want to say typical because it sounds like no, I'm damning right. it with faint praise, but sort of like a typical horror movie yeah. score. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. No, sort you're of right. Marco Beltrami, like, yeah. serious tones. Yeah, the first, the first one is like a traditional horror movie because it's more like, a, it feels like a traditional horror movie, you mm-hmm. know, like guy stuck alone in scary asylum. So it does have that more Pendretsky influence. But the second one, yeah, you're right. When, when the car happens, it's more of like a, it's more of like a Danny Elfman, Bernard Herman driving like mm-hmm. jump, 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 jump. And, uh, and then in the third one, there's actually not a lot of music because it's kind of similar to that paranormal activity vibe where the, the, the fear is derived from the silence. So if I remember correctly, I don't remember a lot from that specific section. And you're right, there's not a lot of score. But I think yeah. if I recall correctly, when you first cut into the third story, there is very, very quiet piano just like some like very quiet chords i don't even know if there's really like much of a melody it's just sort of like It's like, especially when he's like looking out those giant windows to the this falling snow. I just the the way each of those stories had their own very distinct vibes, both in like visuals, but also like the music was like that is definitely a score that you would hear for this type of movie that they're portraying. Mm-hmm. This sort of like like the the, the the stories where it's like family moves into new big house and is haunted oh, yeah. by thing. I do feel like a lot of that was carried out in the score. You know, a lot of those same things that were in the movie or, you know, a lot of these same ideas and themes and tributes from the movie are amplified by the score Mm -hmm. uh, in the best way. And there's only two uses of incidental music. And they're also both carefully chosen, in my opinion. Uh, The first one is the song Why by Anthony Newley. And the like, literally the very first lyrics are, I'll never let you go. Why? Because I love you. I'll never let you go. 
let you go Why? Because I love you I'll always love you so Why? Because you love me It, to me, you know, is a very ironic foreshadowing of like, he's never going to let this idea go of his, you know, like legacy and questioning himself because he can't. It's also <laughs> fitting because of Tony's, in a way, it's not Tony's daughter, but like, it feels very much like a, I'll never let you go because I love you. Like this, oh, yeah, the ghost of this yeah. little girl haunting him, even though we know that that's not real. Mm-hmm. Like that's the story that's being told. And so that music plays very well into his guilt about not going to visit his daughter. It's also, yes. by the way, because I don't know if you noticed what he whistles at the end of the movie when he's the janitor and he like moves the mirror as he leaves. Hmm. He's whistling. Why? That's interesting. The only other uh, incident of, uh, well, instance of incidental music is right after that in the ending credits when the Monster Mash plays. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. I love it because it it adds like a cheekiness to it, which is very <laughs> British. But also the song, you know, Monster Mash is like a tribute to universal horror from the 30s and 40s because it's specifically done by Bobby, quote, Boris Pickett doing a terrible Boris Karloff impression. It was also it was a novelty song, which was popular in the 50s. Like there was a novelty song for everything. Plus it was like a hop song, which was a popular song to play at the hop, which was, you know, basically like the dance Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, like line dances from the eighties and nineties. Yeah, it, the sock it was, hops. Yes, sock hops. Um, and so all of that. It's, it's interesting how, like, it, you think it's such a goofy choice, but then you realize that that song, that song, Monster Mash, is also doing like what the movie is doing, which is that it is being a thing while also paying tribute to something that is beloved. Mm-hmm. In the mouth of madness. It's completely different. It's scored by John Carpenter, and it is full 80s, like, power metal. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a lot of power metal. Uh, specifically, the opening is very, like, light ACDC, kind of. I always felt like In the Mouth of Madness and Maximum Overdrive had kind of linked in my brain subconsciously. (laughs) And it's because the opening music from In the Mouth of Madness totally sounds like an ACDC song. It feels like the beginning of Maximum Overdrive. You're right. And I feel like that is a really interesting technique used by John Carpenter to take these things that are older, you know, like all these references to Lovecraft and stuff and kind of bring the a modern edge to the story by updating the score, updating the setting, using lots of synthesizers and, you know, bass guitars and like, you know, all the stuff from like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, 80s and 90s. So like modern horror things are being brought in the score, even though the tributes are to things that are older, I guess. So I mean, you're absolutely right because uh, carpenter like one of the things carpenter tends to do in his in his works is modernize older concepts because mm-hmm. it's not just like in the mouth of madness is sort of like a modernization of hp lovecraft while also sort of winking at stephen king but like the thing is itself literally a remake of an old 50s mm-hmm. monster movie that's been modernized and sort yep. of made super spooky even his his other his non-horror stuff like big trouble from little china 100 is sort of like a an update of like old 50s action serials like the right down to Fu Manchu being like this cartoonish villain so that's like a thing that he does a lot is the, taking those old ideas and like even the fog is kind of a taking oh, yeah. old like old sea ghost stories and then putting this mm-hmm. modern spin on them 
I feel like one of those ways that he really modernizes that stuff is because he is not only the director, so he has control of the visual aspect of it, but also, you know, he's usually the scorer as well. And so he he brings a lot of that update to his scoring as well, because I was just going to say, well, it's it's all synthesizers. But at the beginning, it's actually like a small ensemble, you know, like a Mm -hmm. normal rock ensemble. And he also does concerts. So he does like a medley just for in the mouth of madness that's just like hits from the movie i guess like he does a track for all of his movies that was what i listened to it wasn't the actual soundtrack to the movie although i could find it on youtube or something it's sort of like an overture like he kind of crafted the score and turned it into an overture yep look at me picking up stuff from you it's just interesting how both of them are positively contributing to what's going on which is great the movies are entirely structured from script to staging to to music they're entirely structured with the idea of referencing well-known genre tropes but spinning them in a new way which I think is great. Like, uh, In the Mouth of Madness feels very 80s and 90s. And Ghost Stories, conversely, feels like a throwback movie. Mm -hmm. Like, as I was watching it, I kind of got throwback vibes. In the same way that, like, Drag Me to Hell is itself Mm -hmm. kind of a throwback to older, like, sort of hammer horror or, or like, the uh, the one that you keep mentioning that I forgot the name of. Oh, yes, the Amicus Portmanteau. Amicus Portmanteau. Like, they're very much, you can feel that they're very much sort of like referencing in style and structure those old movies, whereas Mm -hmm. John Carpenter sort of took the inverse of, like, I'm going to take this old idea and I'm going to modernize it, make it fucking (laughs) hip and rock. Yeah. Okay, I think that about does it for this discussion. You can follow us on Twitter at eerie underscore earfuls. Email us at eerie.earfuls at gmail.com and visit us on the web at eerieearfuls.com. You can subscribe to us on Google Play, iTunes, and many other podcast providers. And if you like what you hear, you should give us a review because it helps other people find the show and it lets us know how we're doing. Our theme music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Our synopsis music is Anxiety and Night of Chaos, also both by Kevin McLeod. I apologize to Kevin McLeod for spending like three years mispronouncing his name. <laughs> Those are licensed under a Creative Commons oh. 3.0 license. You can find more music at incompetech.com. Thank you for listening, and stay scared, everyone. Ghost Stories is a 2,000... Ghost Stories is a 2,000... Ghost Stories is a film from the year of our Lord 2017 Anno Domani. I almost, almost went into like a Swedish chef impression. <laughs> Ghost Stories is a 2,017... <laughs> I love the Swedish <laughs> chef. It's my alter ego, basically. It's what I do in the kitchen.